This morning, we continue our series, Living the Gospel. We've been in the Gospel of John for a few weeks now, like seven. This is going to be week eight. And this week, we're in chapter eight, and we'll be looking at verses one through 11. Now, the choice of text for this sermon this morning could be somewhat controversial. It doesn't actually show up in any of the original manuscripts. There is a strong prevailing thought that this wasn't originally a part of John's gospel at all, but was added in later. After conferring with people smarter and more educated than myself, I am confident that this is, like, this is a real story. This did happen. This is a story of Jesus, even though it probably didn't happen at this exact point in Jesus' ministry. In fact, it's, it's widely believed that John's gospel doesn't follow any kind of historical order. His stories are out of place on the timeline of, uh, of Jesus' ministry. So this book is the most logical place for the early church to add this story of Jesus to. Now this story has been twisted to say some things it doesn't really say. So it's important as we look at the text and explore the story this morning that we don't use this story to teach something that we couldn't teach from somewhere else in Scripture. That said... That's a big disclaimer, but it is like it's a great story, and I'm looking forward to going through it. I'm excited to, to look at this text with you this morning. Again, the text is John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. If you'd like to follow along in your Bibles, you are welcome to do so. There is a Bible in the pew in front of you if you would like to use that. Or if you prefer, the words will be on the screens, and you can just read along. We read the word of the Lord this morning, John 8, 1 to 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to cast a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. In 2019, Pixar released Toy Story 4, the latest installment in the Toy Story series. If you're not familiar with Toy Story, well, the premise is that toys come to life and care for their owners. The series follows a group of toys led by a stuffed cowboy named Woody and a plastic space ranger named Buzz and highlights the struggles that toys face being the favorite toy, right? getting lost, making sure nobody gets left behind on moving day, their kids getting older and not wanting to play with them anymore, that kind of thing. The movies, are, they're great. But Toy Story 4 
hit me harder than some of the previous installments, and that's largely because of a new character the series introduced, Forky. Forky is a spork that Woody, Buzz, and the gang's new owner, Bonnie, made in kindergarten. He's got red pipe cleaner for arms, mismatched googly eyes, some colored gel for a mouth and hair, and a broken popsicle stick for feet. Woody snuck into Bonnie's backpack to make sure she had company for kindergarten, so he's the first to meet Forky. When Bonnie returns home and throws her backpack into the playroom, Woody introduces the rest of the toys to Forky, and and they don't get it. This doesn't look like a toy. How could this assembled junk mean anything to Bonnie? How could he be important to her? He's, He's not a toy. He's a bunch of trash stuck together. And while we might think that Forky would be offended by the way that the other toys think of him, how they regard him, he's actually in total agreement. His first few words are, I'm trash. He doesn't see himself as a toy. He doesn't see himself as what Bonnie sees. He just sees trash. And for a chunk of the beginning of the movie, Forky is constantly trying to escape Bonnie, constantly trying to run away and throw himself into the garbage can where he believes that he belongs. Ever since I watched that movie, the character of Forky has stuck with me, particularly in times of my failures. Times when I didn't live up to the expectations that I have of myself. Maybe my failure was moral. Maybe I fell into a sin that I've been fighting, a temptation I've tried to avoid and done well at avoiding only to slip in a moment of weakness. Maybe it wasn't a moment of weakness, but of desire. And as I sit in the regret of my decision, my lack of control, my failure to act in the way that I want to, in the way that I know that I should, I look at myself in the mirror and think, I'm trash. Maybe my failing is less sinful and more because of my limitations. I saw my child beginning to fall, but wasn't quick enough to catch them, and now I'm berating myself because I wasn't as fast or as observant as I wanted to be, as my child needed me to be. Maybe I had a bad day in the pulpit. The sermon just didn't happen the way that I wanted to. It lacked punch. It it didn't fit together when I gave it in the way that it had fit together in my office when I wrote it. And I know that it's truly the Holy Spirit that works through the proclaimed word. It's, it's not me. But in my moments of weakness, I know that I could have done better, that I expect better of myself, and I get disappointed in falling short of my standards, and I look at myself and I think, I'm trash. I don't know where you are or, or what you're going through, but I do know that none of us reach the expectations that we have of ourselves all the time. We aren't always the parent that we think that we should be, that we want to be. We don't always meet the standard of student or teacher or pastor or congregant or employee or employer or husband or wife or son or daughter or Christian or whatever we are. We don't always meet the standards that we have set for ourselves. We don't always meet the expectations that we have for ourselves. And sometimes we sit in the recognitions of our failings, of our falling short, and think, I'm trash. And if we can't meet the expectations that we have of ourselves, how can we ever hope to meet the expectation that God has of us? Be perfect as I am perfect. 
Well, Lord, that ship has sailed. I missed that boat a long time ago. And the problem with perfection is that missing it isn't something you can recover from. Once I've checked the box for imperfect, I can't suddenly become perfect. That box gets grayed out. And so as I sit in my imperfection and the sin that has caused me to fall short of not only my expectations, but the expectations of my God, I move my cursor to check the only box left to me. I'm trash. How are we doing with that? How are we doing with recognizing that we fall short, that we aren't good enough? How are we doing with knowing that we cannot meet all of the expectations that we have set for ourselves and are hopeless to meet the expectations that God has set for us? It's not fun. It's brutal. It's humbling. It's embarrassing. It brings us shame. I imagine it's a bit what the woman from our text this morning felt like. I can't even begin to imagine what was going through this poor lady's head. She was caught in the act of adultery, and there are witnesses. It's likely that they pulled her from between the sheets. How embarrassing would that be? To be in the act of sinning and to have the door burst down and men, you don't know, uncovering your sin and exulting in your shame. They don't see you as a person who has feelings and hurts and weaknesses and someone that is worthy of respect and dignity. No, they see you as a tool, as an instrument by which they might trap their adversary. And they parade you in front of Jesus and they throw the law at him and say, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman, women. Now what do you say? Like the toys gathered around Forky, these teachers of the law treat this woman like she is a lesser person. They don't give her the respect that they would insist that they themselves deserve. And to add to the disgrace, they are teachers of the law, but they don't really seem to be aware of what the law teaches. That or they decided to apply the law how they, say, how they see fit, which is an even more egregious error. Yes, the law of Moses prescribed the death penalty for adulterers, but it prescribed that penalty for both parties, for the women and the men. Where's the dude? This lady wasn't off committing adultery by herself. It takes two to tango. She wasn't alone when they pulled her from the sheets, so where's the guy? Where's the man? The dehumanizing that these teachers of the law do to this woman is abominable. They apply the law in the, the law in the way that they want to, not in the way that it was given. They adapt the law to fit their male chauvinistic tendencies and preferences. They humiliate this lady by first waiting for her to fall into sins that they might catch her in it and then actually barging in during the act, putting the sole blame on her and then parading her shame as a trap for their enemy. Let us not be the Pharisees. Let us not be the toys in the toy room looking at the spork with googly eyes, looking at the known sinner and going, they don't belong here. How could our master, how could our God want them? How could he love them? 
Let us not interpret God's laws in a way that favors our preferences. It's tempting to focus on the areas where others fall. It's preferable to our sinfulness to focus on the sinfulness of others. But none of us is perfect. When we are tempted to emphasize the areas of the law that others have broken, let us also be reminded and humbled by the areas of the law that we ourselves have broken. That is what Jesus does in our text this morning. He looks at this woman who has been paraded before him in her shame. He knows the law better than anyone. And he knows the injustice that it is that she is before him alone. He knows what she has gone through. He knows how she is being used as a tool to put him in a trap. And as he looks upon her, he builds the tension by saying nothing and instead bending down and writing on the ground. We don't know what Jesus was writing, and I'm not going to speculate on it this morning or probably ever. The Bible doesn't tell us, so we don't have to know. But what we do know is that this has got to aggravate the teachers of the law. The trap is set. If Jesus says that she should be let go, then they have him trapped by the law. He's now broken it and isn't the perfect one everyone is making him out to be. If he says that she should be stoned, well then, they have him doubly so, because he'll lose favor in the eyes of the crowd who have been following him and might gain the attention of the Romans who jealously guard their authority over capital punishment. The trap is set, Jesus. Stop writing in the sand and let us spring it on you. The text tells us that as he is writing with his finger on the floor, the teachers of the law continue to pepper him with questions, continue to aggravate him. And then he stands up and a hush falls over the room. The teachers of the law waiting for their moment of victory. The woman waiting for her shame to deepen. And into the silence Jesus speaks saying, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to cast a stone at her. And with those words he once again bends and writes on the ground. Notice that Jesus does not say that the law doesn't matter. He doesn't ignore the law. He doesn't minimize it. In fact, he emphasizes it. He basically gives them permission to carry out the punishment that the law demands, but he adds a caveat. He sinks the knife. He points out that the sword of judgment is double-edged. In judging others, we judge ourselves. Jesus points out that none of them are worthy to pronounce judgment on this woman. Now, there's a difference between a difference between judgment and confronting someone in their sin, right? As brothers and sisters in Christ, we are absolutely called to confront our fellow Christians on their sin in gentleness and kindness, not that their shame would be made greater, but that they might repent and be forgiven. As Bruce Milne puts it, This passage shows that when handling an individual who has failed, the church in its pastoral mission needs to move with the greatest sensitivity and understanding. Judgment would be casting the stone. Judgment would be deciding the person's fate. And we, just like the teachers of the law in our text this morning, know that we do not meet the qualifications to cast a stone, for we would need to start by stoning ourselves. And as the weight of Jesus' words sink into those around him, the teachers of the law realize that their their trap was sprung. But where they had tried to catch Jesus, they had actually caught themselves. And as the weight of Jesus' words, sorry, just said that, one by one in silence, they leave the temple courtyard. 
I love how the text states that the older ones leave first. The mature set the example for the young. They knew that though their lives had been dedicated to the understanding and following the law, that they had broken it many times, and so they recognized that they were unworthy of casting a stone. And as the weight of the wisdom of the elders settles upon the younger teachers of the law, they too drop their stones and make their exit, leaving only Jesus and the woman. Why did she stay? All of her accusers have left. They have been disarmed. Their stones have been dropped, and they are no longer there to enforce her judgment, and yet she remains. Why? As I wrestled with this question, I reached out to my New Testament professor from seminary. He told me that he places some weight on an argument from silence. That she didn't take the opportunity to disappear when everyone else did, but she waited to hear what Jesus, the one who was qualified to judge, would say. What my professor is saying is that we don't read of the woman's repentance in the text, but we see it in her posture. She knows that she has done wrong. She knows that though there was none left to stone her, it's stoning that she deserves. Though the circumstances of her arrival before Jesus were shameful and carried out cruelly, that doesn't mean that she shouldn't be receiving judgment. And so though we do not read that this woman repents, we see it in the way that she acknowledges her sin and waits for the judgment of Jesus. Jesus stands and holds this woman in his gaze and asks her, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she responds. Then neither do I condemn you, declares Jesus. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now we're going to talk about how hearing those words must have felt for the woman, but before we get there, it's important to recognize what those words cost Jesus. Sin is sin, and the law holds power. It isn't to be mocked or discarded. Following the law is good for us. It brings glory to God. To act like it doesn't matter anymore, that God doesn't care if we follow the Ten Commandments anymore, is to make a mockery of God's will and desire for us, and it robs him of glory. So that cannot be what Jesus is doing here. He would not mock God, steal his glory, or give anyone a license to sin. No, instead, he knew that soon he would be paying the price, not only for this woman's sin of adultery, but for all of her sins and for all the sins of the men who had just left the temple courts and for the sins of the entire world, all who had lived before and all who had yet to live. As Bruce Milne puts in his commentary on John, declaring, neither do I condemn you, cost Jesus the hell of Calvary. In his great love for us, God sent us Jesus. We've been following his story throughout this series as we have grown to understand deeper what it means to live the gospel. And as we follow it to the end of his time here on earth, we will get to the event that allows Jesus to speak these words to this woman. For though he is sinless, though he never once failed, though he never once gave in to temptation, though he never once broke the laws of God, Jesus would be convicted of crimes he never committed and he would be sentenced to a death that he did not deserve. The death would not be a simple or quick one. He would be mocked by crowds and whipped by soldiers. They torturously embedded a crown of thorns on his head to mock his kingship. And they gave him a heavy wooden cross to carry up a hill to a place called Calvary. 
And there he would be nailed to that cross, which was then raised that his bloody, beaten, and broken body might be on display for all to see. The implications were clear. Did you think this man could beat us? Asked the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. Did you think that we would lose to the son of a carpenter from Nazareth? And though these men may have tried to claim victory that night, it was not those nails that kept the Son of God attached to that cross, but our sin. For though it was the machinations of sinful men that put Jesus on the cross, this had always been God's plan. For he sent Jesus to reconcile man with God. We are the broken creation. We are the ones who failed him. He never failed us. And yet he still loves us so much that he wants us to have a relationship with him. And so Jesus came and lived a perfect life and then went to the cross and there he became sin for us and there he took the punishment of sin. He took the wrath of God for us in our place. The cost of telling that woman, neither do I condemn you, was not just a brutal death on a cross. It was bearing the wrath of God for something he never did. It was accepting the punishment that the thoughts, acts, and lives of others had warranted. It was dying a death that he did not earn, that others might have the life that they did not deserve. There on the cross, Jesus died for us and in our place. But he did not stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the grave and in so doing conquered sin and death. The Bible tells us that when we believe in Jesus and we have faith in him, the faith that he has given us when we are resting in that and not in our own works and our own actions in what we have done or not done, when we are resting in the work of Christ on the cross, then we are covered in the righteousness of Jesus. Through faith in Jesus, the rags of our sinfulness have been taken away and we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Jesus did not cast a stone. He took the stones himself for us in our place that we might be reconciled to God through faith in him, that we might be forgiven because of his work on the cross. This is our God and this is his love on display for us. And that love is further expressed in his final statement before the woman leaves. Go now and leave your life of sin so often we can think of God's instruction, God's direction as, as walls that keep us trapped inside someone else's desire for our lives. But in the same way that parents don't want their children to touch a hot burner or go deeper into the water than they are able to swim, so God doesn't want us putting ourselves in situations that will hurt us. The instruction to leave our lives of sin is not a threat, but a guiding principle, a God-honoring direction that will benefit us if we follow it. It will bring glory to God if we follow it. It will be better for those around us, for our neighbors, our families, if we follow it. What may feel like a reprimand at first is just one more example of God pouring out his grace over us. As we rest in that grace that God has poured out, let us imagine what it felt like to be the woman in that moment when Jesus declared, neither do I condemn you. Here she stood before the one who had the right to judge her, the one who could cast the stone. She acknowledged her sin. She admitted her failings, that she deserved judgment. But instead of death, she was given life. Instead of justice, she was given mercy. 
The grace of God, the favor that she had not earned, was poured out on her that day in the temple courts. And it is still being poured out on us today, even when we feel like trash. Just as we are to approach the handling of one who has failed with sensitivity and understanding, let us be sensitive or steadfast in our commitment to encourage them in their worth to God. As Forky continues to throw himself into the trash, Woody is there to drag him out. Even when the family takes a road trip, Forky is creative and dogged in his determination to throw himself away. Woody must be equally creative and stubborn in his refusal to let Forky make his way to the many garbage cans that they come upon on their trip. And then one fateful night it happens. As the RV, the family is traveling in barrels down the road at night, Woody falls asleep and Forky makes his move. Woody jolts awake to see Forky climbing to an open RV window. Forky tells Woody that he's not a toy, that he's a spork. That he was made for soup, salad, and maybe chili, and then the trash. And with that last statement, he throws himself out the window and is lost to the road. But Woody does not give up. He follows Forky out the window, and after a brutal landing on the asphalt and a short walk back the way they had come, Woody finds Forky stuck by his spork tines upside down in the dirt on the side of the road and begins to drag him back to Bonnie. And during their walk to the RV park five miles down the road where the family is camping for the night, Woody and Forky have a conversation. As they talk, Woody helps Forky realize that what he is made of and how he feels about himself have no effect on how Bonnie sees him. She made him. And he's important to her. That without him, she would be hurt and sad. That he matters, not because of the value that he has placed on himself, but because of the value that she has placed on him. And eventually, Forky gets it. And it is my prayer that we get it as well. Even though we can't seem to stop falling short of our expectations, even though no matter what we do, we feel like it leads to our disappointment or the disappointment of others. Even though there are times that we look at ourselves in the mirror and think, I'm trash. It is my prayer that we would realize that we are so much more than that to God. He created us, not out of a spork, but in his own image. We are important, each one of us, because we are important to him. And though we have left, let him down, though we have failed him, instead of casting the stone at us, he sent his son to take the stones for us. That we might have a relationship with him, that we might have a relationship with the God who made us and who will never leave us or forsake us. This is our God. This is what he has done for us. This is what he thinks of us. Let us rest in that. What a fantastic, loving, gracious, just, and merciful God we serve. Amen.